Welcome to another episode of the Designers FM podcast. This week we have a panel discussion around prototyping. What is a prototype, when to use it, and what are the pitfalls? On the show we have Andre Herasmchuk, David Bullock, and new to the show Dan van Klinken from Flow Your Money. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Designers FM podcast. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, prototyping, what they are, when you use them, what are the benefits, and how you can convince your boss to invest in prototyping. And we have another panel discussion. Uh, so we have Andre. Welcome to the show. I think Hello. You, you don't need an introduction so to save some time. We also have David Bollock on the show. David, say hi. Hello there. Hi. And we have uh, another guest, Dan van Klinken from uh, Flow or Flow Your Money. What's the official business name? Yeah, we like Flow, but uh, apparently everybody likes the name Flow. So sometimes we do call ourselves Flow Your Money to be uh, more findable. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself for a guest? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm a designer and I have been a designer for a long time. I was an interaction designer at an agency called United. Now it's called Hike One before. I was a team lead interaction design there. And I worked on many different design projects, especially Dutch. So the Bimetadar app, Redesign, Radio 538 app, Philips TV remote, Ziggo TV interface that's live now. And also when I became a team lead there, I had less time for big projects. So I did a lot of design sprints, facilitated them. And also every time you need a prototype, of course. And then I went on to freelance with my, with my design buddy. Yeah. Because we wanted to start a startup, we decided to freelance first to get make money and learn about our field we wanted to go to. Uh, so we first freelanced at Yolt from ING, then Schiphol app we worked on, Airport, Amsterdam Airport, Schiphol, and PostNL. And then, yes, then we found a startup called Flow. It's a fintech startup, so a financial startup. And in a nutshell, what we do, it's if this and that for money. So we, we made an app. People can connect their bank accounts to the app and then they can divide their money smart and intelligently across different accounts, even savings accounts, investments accounts, so that you can really control your cash flow, get a grip on it and eventually make more money like that. And yeah, I'm still doing design there, but yeah. I'm also, yeah, as the founder together with my partner, now we have a bigger team. We need to do a lot of business stuff. It's a financial app, so we needed to get... A sort of banking license from the Dutch Central Bank. We need for that costs a lot of money. We needed investors. So yeah, still doing design, but also learned a lot of other skills with my design mindset that come with it. Cool. And I can imagine since it's a, a banking app and there's a lot of like dependencies like with banks. You did a lot of prototyping to make sure yeah. that you cover all those all those edge cases. Yeah, yeah. And as a startup in general, we needed to validate. Is this uh, a, a solution that people are looking for? Uh, so in general, we did a lot of prototyping, but also it's also a lot of, about trust. Yeah, you're a fintech and people don't know you and they have to connect their bank accounts. So everything needs to be right. And even more so than a normal app, I would say. So even the smaller mistakes that can lead to people mistrusting you, like, oh, they made a typo. Is this a company I would like to uh, manage yeah. my money with? So yeah, we did a lot of prototyping. Awesome. Still do. Before we get into the discussion about what a good prototype looks like and I think why people should invest in prototype, Andre, I know you have a, a great definition for what a prototype is and what kinds of different prototypes there are. Do you like to tell something about that? Uh, a lot of people, when they talk about prototypes, they tend to conflate and blend a lot of the different kinds of things you can do into one category. And I find that that gets people into trouble, especially uh, when you're trying to, to figure out what kind of prototype to get you a certain kind of information or a certain kind of validation or to even just test out the idea just so you can see for yourself what the heck is going on. So for a long time, people would say things like paper prototyping and they would call that prototyping. And I always felt that was not a good way to, to do it because paper prototyping is a very low fidelity, very, very broad swath of information you get. It's not very good for a lot of things. It's good for, for a general thing. And so the way I do it is I break prototyping into three stages or three different types. One is I just call storyboards, just like you get in the movies. A storyboard is you draw it out, you do cutscenes, you can tell a story, 
you can try different things out. And so paper prototyping or those kinds of things like boxes and arrow workflows tend to fall into the category of what I would call storyboarding. The second one is interactive. And interactive is when you add like click through HTML things or things like a principle that had animation attached to it or early days of Framer, but not these days of Framer, but the early versions of Framer. And even back in the old day, things like HyperCard, Macromedia Director and whatnot. So interactive, it just gives you a, a good sense of flow, gives you a good sense of, of motion. And does this make sense from an A to B point of view, et cetera. And then the last one is what I would call prototyping or production or whatever, but that is actually a, the, the product in prototype form. And this is real code. It's hooked usually up to a good backend, but it's not a shipping version. It can be a low fidelity code prototype or a medium fidelity. So like a framer these days really offers good solutions to both low fidelity and medium fidelity. And in some cases can get you even very close to high fidelity. So Figma, in my opinion, does not do prototyping. It does the interactive stuff. Whereas framer is actually more of a product prototype or a production prototype. And it's not to say either of these three are better than the other, but people need to understand, I think that when they talk about certain things, they're usually talking about, they're, uh, talking about storyboarding or interactive or production. And that's how I define it. Cool. And David, at Booking, what is the what is the kind of prototyping that you use the most and most value in at a big company like Booking? Yeah, I mean, so I just, at first I just want to say I 100% totally agree with what Andre said. And at Booking, I've done the, the latter of the two. So storyboarding and the paper prototypes, not so much. So it, more recently using Figma quite a lot. Uh, in the past, maybe, uh, yeah, we can use principle for, for some of the more complex animations, but we tend to use that very little. And even in, in experience, I tend to not use that very often just because those animations tend to be a lot more of an investment. However, at Booking, I think the most successful were those live function prototypes. So when you can use a tested server, you can code and change whatever you like, conduct live interviews with, with real code and real interactions, it will be slower. It might be not very well polished, but I think uh, Booking, that's what I've tend to use the most. And that's where we've got the best results from as well, especially for, so for example, if it's a cognitive walkthrough, we can just go through a couple of screens in Figma or, or InDesign, but sorry, Vision, but yeah. more recently for, for actual usability tests, being able to, to gauge th those real interactions, we would actually have real live code multiple screens that we can go through and we can let the, the, the user just go through each screen bit by bit. And we, we tend to get a lot more usable feedback from, from those uh, sessions. Cool. And Dan, I think since you, yeah, you founded like the startup, is mm -hmm. it also true that you went through like the different stages of prototypes or did you end up only doing like the, the real data ones, which are more closely to production version? Yeah, especially the the real quick ones. Yeah, there's also a different stage of prototyping with us. So you also have, of course, uh, getting an app in test flight. That's also, yeah, is that prototyping? So yeah, what, what we did was uh, also design sprints, of course. And I did a lot of design sprints uh, last few years. And it's for me, it's it all depends on the context you're in. So if you're doing a big project and you can take time on a prototype and you're building it, also using it for yourself to learn like, okay, is this flow uh, logical? That's different than that you're in a design sprint. You need to design a prototype in one day, and then you choose the right tool for that and make it as realistic as possible. So yeah, we did a lot of those. And also with the constraints of being a remote company. And right now, everybody, every company is a remote company yeah. with Corona. But we were at uh, voluntarily before Corona already. So we had to figure that out. Okay, what tools to use now? How to remotely test uh, things? Yeah, for me, it's just two categories, basically. Like... Pro making a real quick and dirty prototype that works for the purpose of testing or validating something real quick and making a real app in test flight. And then again, inviting user onboarding users using zoom and shared screens to see what they're doing and then making changes in the real app and then pushing that to live production. Yeah. So, so can I ask real, real quick, Dan, um, mm -hmm. is it Dan or Don? Don. Don. I'm trying, trying to get my Dutch to be <laughs> Dan a, a is lot fine better. Too. Don. Yes. So the design sprint thing is uh, confused people, in in my opinion, in a weird way. So you said, and I hear this often, at the end of the design sprint or during the design sprint, you make a prototype. So rather than asking you what kind of prototype it was, can we ask you what kind of tools you use to make different kind of prototypes based on the context? I think that yeah. would help under yeah. help help this discussion. Sure, sure, sure. So for me, it's always ad hoc. 
So I look at the room. So we have a design sprint, usually takes a week, of course. And first I look, okay, who are the players? Sometimes I have real developers. So one time I had an Android and iOS developers and we ended up, I asked them the question, do you guys think you can make this prototype good enough as a real app in one day? And they thought they could, and they did. So we had an Android app and an iOS app. That was like an exception, of course. I always look at, okay, what are the skills in the room and who can do it? In general, if it was a small design sprint and I was also the designer, or maybe there was also a visual designer, then we always worked in Figma. So we, by default, we worked in Sketch, but not anymore, but that's what like uh, a couple of years ago, but always for design sprints, we worked in Figma because you can collaborate. That's coming to Sketch now as well. And then we chose the, the tool that uh, was the easiest or, or matched the purpose. So it depended on, depending on uh, the project. So sometimes you really needed to test something interactive and then a quick click through prototype wouldn't fit because then yeah, it doesn't, doesn't fit. Then, then you go for the tool to use there. And my rule of thumb is always use the most simple tool that you can to achieve the purpose. I, I have the skills to use Framer or anything, but why would you? if you could have made an Envision prototype. I really personally hate Envision, so I never do that, but so, a tool like that. And now Figma is becoming more and more mature. And oftentimes it doesn't make sense to even think of another tool next to Figma to prototype yeah. for design sprints. Yeah, no, so that all makes sense. And and I think the, the thing that is weird, at least for my, so I've been doing this kind of job for far too long, obviously. And I've seen the prototyping go from using HyperCard to using Director to using all sorts of tools over the years. And so I agree with everything you're saying, but I wonder the way you're saying it, is it that you don't use Framer or you don't use an iOS kit or a, an Android kit to build the prototype only because of time or is it because of skill set or because of tools? And what I mean, and what I mean by that, by the way, just real quick, sorry, mm -hmm. what I mean by that is in the past, people would always claim that it would take too much time to do something and the tools got better and then mm -hmm. we have more templates and more system kits and stuff. And now that's occurred, people are just using it naturally as if that's okay. And so I wonder, is it really the context or is it really just the tools holding you back about what you want to prototype? Yeah, time is a very big factor. So for me, I also always want to prototype as broad as possible because it doesn't make sense if you make one path and the user has to find the clickable button and then yeah, the prototype works. So I always look at, okay, how can I maximize the output? I really want this output. And what's, uh, maybe it's a really small scope in a design sprint, for example, and you, you can really go deep on the prototype and making it super realistic. Okay, then we go for a more high fidelity prototyping tool. So mo most of the time the middle ground is, for example, Flint, uh, Flinto or Principle. I don't really like Principle with all the timelines and all the default animations you get for free, which you, which you don't want. But Flinto was, for me, a lot of times a middle ground. It takes, of course, a little bit more time to, to make than in, uh, in Figma, but you can do way more with it. You can uh, zoom in on some interactions, micro interactions, get a real nice prototype. But I always, it's and time is one factor, context is a factor, like who, who do you have in the room? If you have like developers or React Native developers, yeah, you can spend way more time on creating super realistic content, for example. And I always put everybody uh, to work. So even the, the decider or the product owner in the team, hey, what can you do? Can you write content or can you, we, did, we made a prototype for a radio 538. So a new, new radio listening app. So we got that product owner decider to get DJs and to really record videos and stuff. So that we had real content and we had like a real radio show that matched with what you did in the prototype. So it's all about who is in the room, the time, the context, and how can you test it? So. What are the conditions of the final test you're going to do? If you can sit next to the person, then anything is possible. You, you can prepare the phone, you can prepare the device, you can use Flinto, whatever, reset it, the user comes in and he thinks it's a real app. If yep. you do it remotely, of course, it's a different story. Yeah, understood. Thanks for the yeah. clarification. And I think, especially the last thing you mentioned, like how much control do you have when the validation or testing happens? It really depends if you are prototyping the the new keyboard for the iPhone for instance versus if you're if you're validating how users are reacting to like a new like a content principle like you're showing yeah. them like videos and you want to see like what their emotional reaction is yeah it really depends there like the context there makes the the choice way easier are you going for a real prototype yeah. because i think in ideal circumstances you always want it as close to 
development as possible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. There are people yeah. saying like, uh, in, yeah, you should uh, make interaction designs and wireframes because people then, uh, it's not about colors or reasons like that, but my rule of thumb is always make it look and behave as real as possible always because yeah, users, they don't know, uh, they don't <laughs> understand yeah. wireframes or uh, recognize that. Yeah, that's always been the, the, the issue is that the higher fidelity of the prototype, the higher uh, information feedback loop you're going to get on whatever it is that you're testing. So that, that's always been true and that's always been... If you have the time, if, yeah. Yeah, yeah, even if you don't have the time, it doesn't. So that's the thing I'm trying to get at. The the question that David's asking, I think, as at the beginning of this is like, how would you convince executives or management or whoever you work for to take time to do these mm. processes? And so part of it is context related. I get that. If you're in a design sprint, then absolutely. If you're good at this kind of thing, knowing what context you can do this and who you've got is going to help you pick the right mm. tools and, and how you're going to end the design sprint. Yeah. But if you're trying to, to get a process or more room and time and money uh, from management and executives, you need to offer them something where you're setting expectations better. And yeah. the reason why I do the storyboard interactive and, and production prototyping concepts is because that, set that sets expectations for people who don't, don't do this as part of their, their daily process or part of their daily work and whatnot. Yeah. So that's just one of the things that's going on in, in that part of it for me is that you always need time and you always need fidelity. And so the question is not to sacrifice one for the other. The question is how can you set expectations so that you can actually use the right one and get the expectations set yeah. at the end of it. And the higher fidelity you have, you will always have higher fidelity feedback. So like when they, the storyboard, for example, you can get high fidelity um, feedback from a storyboard. If you know the stories about the matrix, when the matrix got made, the Wachowski brothers, excuse me, the Wachowskis <laughs> actually hired three different artists to do their storyboards. And each artist had a different style and they used those three different styles to reflect this, the, the film quality and the tone that they were using the movie. So one was a dark green grain, which was the matrix. One was reality, which was like this cyberpunk dystopian browns and, and steel. And the other one was this kind of high gloss part of the simulation rooms where the karate and the guns and all that stuff happened. And they, the storyboards look amazing. You get a real sense of what the film is going to be. So I just think expectation setting is really where it comes into this and knowing what the tools can do and what you can get out of them goes a long way to setting expectations. That's all. Yeah, true. Um, and given your last example, Andre, does it then also differ based on the, the breadth of the product? If you have a travel product where it's all about like preparing for your travel, going on your travel, like experiencing your travel and then coming back and then experiencing like the, the coming back on the airport. If you have, if you want to prototype an app like that, where you have to be mm -hmm. like all over the world, for instance, in a week, then maybe to like paint that picture, especially early on, like a prototype m might make more sense. Like so this is the reason why... You this is the reason why I'm pushing this is that high fidelity prototypes will always went out and now we've got tools allowed, allowed to make them. So for example, doing Photoshop 4 back in the 90s, we built a different version of Photoshop. So one of the hardest things to deal with Photoshop 4 was that layers were becoming everything. So in Photoshop 3, layers were introduced, but they were partially there. They're halfway implemented as the engineers would like to say. In four, the entire product was rewritten so that all the memory structures, all the rendering pipeline, everything was a layer. So when you pasted something, you didn't paste a floating selection anymore, you pasted a layer. That behavior was like, whoa, it freaked everybody out. And we built a different version of Photoshop every week, um, and sometimes twice, two or, two or three different ones every week, and sent it out to alpha testers. I would burn a CD and I would mail them to alpha testers. And we went through, I think, at least 20 to 30 iterations of different ways the keyboard had to work and the layers worked in the interface to get what you have see today. And that, hasn't, that behavior hasn't changed since. There was no other way to do that. We had to actually build versions of Photoshop that did that. And I had to play with them and I had to reject some of them outright. Like, this is just broken because if you do this combination of things, it doesn't work. But the thing about setting expectations for executives and management is that you need to set, look, a paper prototype is not going to get you that fidelity of information back. It's just not. You have to build the product. Mm. And that's why design sprints are great. And if you've got the team to be able to figure out on the, uh, on the fly what to come out of it, that's also great. But design sprints are very well understood to be something quick to get some ideas and to validate some stuff. Mm -hmm. In the actual design of products, we need a better expectation setting of what we use will yield certain information back 
so that the people who run the, the company stop asking us to find out whether we can do this travel thing over a week through a paper prototype as if that's going to tell us anything. Yeah. Sure. One timeout for a second. You worked mm -hmm. on Photoshop? Oh, he doesn't know this? No, <laughs> you, you skipped the introductions of everybody because you guys knew each other, but uh, what? Yeah, so I worked on Photoshop. <laughs> I did the creative suite. I worked on at Twitter as the design director for a little bit. And yeah. I also was the first employee at Figma. So I helped Figma get off the ground. Wow. Okay, that's really cool. I've been pushing prototyping for at least 30 years. I've been in and my experience of it has been that people fight back against it because they think it's expensive and time consuming, mm -hmm. which it used to be. Yeah. And to your point now, you get a bunch of people inside of Figma with collaboration, you can put together an interactive prototype, a click through, uh, better than click through with motion and stuff. That is pretty good. That's awesome. Framer, I think, is amazing. I remember when Kunin Yorn showed me the early days of the Framer project. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. That's gotten light years ahead now. And you can do all kinds of low to medium to high fidelity production prototypes with Framer that connects to your Figma stuff that connects to anything else. It's gotten really good. And I, what I want people to come away from is that prototyping was always the thing to be doing. It was always expensive before and time consuming before. The time consuming and expensive had gone way down now. Mm -hmm. So it's now time for us in the design community to better set expectations and express what these things can do. Um, and the more we start to distinguish and make more clear what each one's do and how they're used, the better and more time will be given to do the things that we, we know how to do. And by the way, making the real product is a lot of fun. So I would rather spend more time doing that and a lot less time than doing a lot of other bullshit that people ask me to do. Yeah, agree. So in a podcast, we're a design god now, but uh, okay, let's continue. <laughs> let's, not let's, let's not go that far. Please. By the way, we're, we're, we're definitely not going to edit this out if you're uh, if you're a woman. No. Oh God, no, please do. <laughs> so I think I think no, I think it's, uh, all... it's it's really funny. You know, I think even designers still have this mindset that prototyping is oh, it's going to take me more time. You know, it's almost just like this this block that we have. We, we just assume it's going to take time. And literally now, if you have your screens ready, if you go into Figma with like the the the, the way you can disconnect those frames and and the smart animations, the the, the overlays, all of that stuff, it's just come on so quickly and you can you can have a really high fidelity of prototyping in literally five minutes and, it, and it's ridiculous just how good it's gotten recently so that's yeah to that point every time you every, sorry every time you you check back and, oh as a month went past i need to make a new prototype <laughs> what yeah, yeah exactly. how can i make this in, how did i just make this in five minutes uh two years yeah. ago three years ago i was like all right timelines connecting everything yes it's finished wow it looks really cool and now it's five minutes in fake yeah and and that goes back to what happened in the web early days. Like it was cool to be able to open view source and then you would try something and you would see, oh, that's how that works. Oh, that's mm -hmm. fun. That's cool. Yeah. And then this gets back to, I think, a point David made in earlier podcasts as well, too, which is basically, and David Nada just brought this up, you start to construct the prototype in the ways that the engineers also have to think a little bit. You're putting things together a certain way. And you will have also not the fun fact, you also have the fun factor of building the prototype, but you also get some more empathy about what it takes to make things like an overlay side swipe animation, hit 60 frames per second properly, and don't use a thousand gradients and a bunch of transparency, for example. Um, so you get some more empathy about how the product is built, which is equally important as yeah. getting the, the validation and testing and empathy about how your customers are going to experience it. Yeah, yes. exactly. You from pro, If you really use a prototyping tool, not Flinta, uh, not Figma, if you really use, use Frame, for example, you really learn how it is to develop this. So it's also really helping you in interaction with, with developers. I have to also make, there is one example where I really, really walked the ladder of which tool to use. Because I, like I said, my rule of thumb is always use the simplest tool that you can to achieve your goal. So I uh, did a design sprint at Bioradar. So it's the Dutch, the number one. The There's one word I rain. can't pronounce. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> rain radar. So in the Netherlands, we have a lot of rain. So everybody needs to know that when it's raining and there's a number one app. It's also a super old app and, um, became so old that they needed to re redesign. So we did design sprint. And one of the things that was really hard for them was zooming in on the map, which is mm. of course like the thing, how to do that, but it was very expensive to build. So I needed to convince the, the company that's something to invest in. They were like, yeah, but this is really clear for people. And does it work together? And can you do it on a small screen? Because you had to do a lot of uh, like a scrubber of the timeline and uh, it was a scrolling page on top of a map. So I thought, okay, let's first do it in Keynote even to mm. show it. But mm -hmm. yeah, okay, it's not interactive. So then I went to Flinto, but 
It was so difficult because you had to zoom on a map, also a scrolling overlay and a scrubber. So it was like in conflicting in interactions. So then I went to uh, Framer and I thought, okay, I use Framer. It was in the day when we used JavaScript or maybe already CoffeeScript. That was the day. And I played around with Framer, but I thought, okay, I have no clue how to build this. But I just thought, okay, let's let's choose, do it one step at a time. Like the Martian, where uh, that guy is stranded on Mars. He's not going to think about how to get back to Earth, but first he has to plug his suit. So I thought, okay, let's do it like that. I first have to make the page scrollable, la, 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 la. And then eventually I came to the point where I had a map uh, that I wanted to pan in. And the scroll view was like, yeah, when you scroll, you get the scroll view and the map doesn't work anymore. So I just went to stack overview. I, just, I almost felt like a real developer. Then I found out, oh, it's proper propagate events. So I feel, uh -huh. so it was, I was all, almost, I was developing it. But I, later on, I could use that to explain to the developer, like he, he had the same problem. Yeah, but I can't do that because I said, oh, wait, maybe use propagate events. Oh yeah, yeah, it does work. So it was really exactly. cool how I went through that and uh, eventually I made it. And then we went to the, to the train station with it and we said yep. to people like, Hey, I'm from Biodatar. So can you please check if this makes sense to you? So they they were like, is this really going to rain that hard tomorrow? I have to get my horses and put them inside. <laughs> we're like, no, it's fake. Yeah, I wanted to show a lot of rain because otherwise it was a boring uh, prototype. I went a bit overboard <laughs> with the rain. Yeah, but awesome. that's a great story. That's exactly the point. You got some empathy how that worked you also can build a better prototype to get better customer feedback yeah but yeah there are a lot of nuances about how things work in software and in hardware that most designers unfortunately are not aware of and making prototypes will put those right in front of you so you have some empathy about what you're asking people to build for you yeah cool so i wanted to get a little bit into because i think it's pretty clear that we're all a big fan of, of prototyping and we've had experiences with it, but there are still a lot of places where prototypes don't happen that much. And I'm not sure if you read the, uh, the Framer State of Prototyping report that they did, but basically they summed up the, the reasons uh, why to do a prototype and the reasons why it fails at companies. And I want to get into those last ones, so why they failed companies. Most of the time it's always about time. It's about learning curves and it's about it being perceived as slow by, by stakeholders. And the reason, of course, you do prototyping, a big one is to eliminate risk because you're going to build it before you actually build it. Now that I've heard your stories, uh, is there an actual reason? Like, because I don't think these are, these are actual reasons. Is there an actual reason not to prototype at your company? Can you come up with a reason to not invest in prototyping? And let me do the, the first one. I can imagine if you work at a company and you don't, you'd have designers who have no experiences in prototyping. This could be a reason to say like, yeah, but we don't want to do it. I would always, of course, say like maybe invest in resources so you can actually build those prototypes. But are there reasons to not do it other than well, this one? It's like, can you still say that today in 2020, if they use Sketch or, or Figma, a designer cannot uh, prototype, didn't do it before. The only thing is connecting with arrows, the screen, connect this screen to that screen. Yeah. Now you already have a prototype, let's pray. So yeah, I don't know if that's still a reason, but yeah, there are, there are, of course, in general, if you use design patterns, so things that are so familiar because everybody knows how it works. Okay. Maybe sometimes then you can skip a step or two because you rely on a pattern to, okay. People will know if this alert pops up and they know they have to press, okay. You don't need to prototype that sometimes. Those are the moments where you can take little shortcuts. But I do have some cases where prototyping went wrong. So uh, first of all, for me, prototyping and, and user testing, that's the most, uh, yeah, that's the that's scenario where I use prototyping the most for, sometimes yeah. also for other reasons, but with user testing, it's also about, you have to really, what I said before, you don't, you should not make a prototype that only can, only shows one path and especially never show the hotspot hints. Some people do that. They make a prototype and then if people tap the, in the wrong area, they see a hotspot hint. Never do that and really go broad. So I always make it look like a whole app and I never ask a question in the beginning. Okay, uh, this prototype is about reserving a parking spot. So press this button, please. I also always want prototypes to go broad so that people can get lost in the app like in real life. And I try to let them find themselves. If you go for, with a really narrow prototype, maybe the user test is successful. 
it looks successful, but actually the prototype failed because you validated your own opinion yeah. and it didn't work. And one more thing when it really can go wrong is when prototypes become political. So I worked on a Ziggo TV interface with a remote control. So we couldn't go for a traditional tool. So we had to build our own sort of tool to, to really make it with videos and sounds and everything. And it became so beautiful and so realistic. And it wasn't a big corporate, of course, with a lot of layers and opinions. Uh, yeah, then it became almost a product. So executives, all kinds of levels are, were mingling in the prototype and, and changed it. No, I want to change this. No. And we were not really in that phase at that moment. We didn't need that feedback. That's going back to the discussion about fidelity. Yeah. There are sometimes reasons why you don't choose fidelity. You really have to manage expectations or to, to make sure that you frame your prototype in the right way, because it can go horribly long, wrong. In the end, it became a very expensive prototype to keep that, or a project to keep that prototype in the air, updating it. And even we had to fly in developers to keep up with the demand of the prototype. And event, in the end, we had to kill that prototype and say, okay, <laughs> let's switch to production now. Yeah, yeah. I've had way too many horror stories that are very similar to that. The funny thing about your question, David, is that there's absolutely no way to know what's going to happen for real until you do it for real just by definition. And with that sort of logic, if you keep that in mind, everything is a prototype up until the point it ships. There's a whole, there's a whole kind of story about software design releases then in the past and how you thought of them. So if you ask anybody, what's the best version of a software product, like a tool, you know, version one, version two, version three, version four, version five, version six, whatever. What version generally was the best version of, of software in the days? Yeah, exactly. It was version three was generally the best version. Now, the funny thing is that version three is actually not version three. Version three is version five. And the reason why that's the case is because alpha and beta come, bef come before one version one. And so alpha is just getting things up and running. Beta is making sure you got all the bugs squashed. Version one is you test it for real. That was effectively your first prototype. Then you found out a bunch of stuff and you fixed it in version two, and then you've realized you overdid it. And then you finally got version three, which was the, the sweet spot. So technically you're prototyping up until the point you hit that version, what you call it version five, or whether you call it shipping beta, whatever you call it, doesn't matter. But if you think you're going to get to version five without going through alpha beta one, two and three, you're kidding yourself. So prototyping has always been about how much you want to try to get to version five and how fast you want to get the, the high fidelity uh, questions answered before you begin the process of actually having people use it. So with that in mind, you're always prototyping. This whole MVP thing is bunk because it's trying to trick people that they're skipping these versions and they're not. There's no way to do that. If you're on a movie set and you gave me a, a, a crazy stunt, like a Christopher Nolan stunt where he flips the truck in The Dark Knight, he said, okay, we're just going to storyboard this out. And then we're going to get on the set. We're going to put the cameras here. We're going to get the guy in the truck and yeah, action. Let's do this. Everybody would look at you like you're fucking insane. Why would you do that? You have to try out different versions. You have to model this out. You have to test it. You have to flip a small truck. You have to flip a big truck. You have to make sure the guys, all of that before you ever actually yell, you know, action for real and commit that thing to film. All creative endeavors, all design, all of these things are, are have those processes that you need to do to, before you get it real. And the software world has always believed, and hopefully will stop believing, but it has always believed in the past that you can skip these things. And it's ridiculous. So to that point, you have to do it. But to Don's point, yes, there are times where you can get into trouble because people are trying to treat these prototypes as if it's the raw product. Mm -hmm. But you got to get them on the right brain path and expectation setting that this is not the raw product. This is a storyboard or interactive or production prototype because yeah. we're trying to figure out how we're gonna get to real but at some point we have to ship and then we'll know for real if it's gonna work yeah i think the it's like maybe a double-edged sword in the sense that if you're in a big company and you're building it's also that up until you release something like a real version prototype most of the time like the uh, people up in leadership they don't really care about because they see slides every week it's, oh there's a new slide with a design in there fine and then at some point, someone made the effort actually building a prototype. For them, it becomes way more real. And it's almost as if they need to be introduced to way more prototypes for them to get used to the fact that these are prototypes. This is how we work. 
and this is how it's going to go into the future because um, still I think we all agree that prototypes are an essential part of building a product but still it's also the case that in a lot of big companies product teams aren't prototyping as much yeah someone needs to think of a good way to yeah to like prototyping if prototypes fall into the wrong hands like in my example, then it go, can go horribly wrong. So if you use it to for C-level people or, or higher-ups to show like, oh, this is what you're doing, like, then it can become like a marketing tool or it can become like uh, their deck, for example. We had yeah. to also update prototypes because they want to show it around. And then that's a su super big distraction for your design team. And also it can derail your whole process because it's not what it's intended for. Exactly. So that's, yeah, it's difficult. So my experience is that, and this is also something I've learned, is that what you show people is what you get, right? If you're treating your uh, C-level executives as users and you give them a prototype, then they're mm -hmm. going to be, then they're going to give feedback as users. But the problem is they're C-level executives. So they think they have a really big influence in, so they're, they're basically like, I'm a really important user and I'm giving you really important feedback. But if you show them like a graph that goes up, they're happy. And then you can go on with building your prototype. Mm -hmm. So it, for me, it's always uh, tricky. Do I show them this thing knowing that they're not going to treat it in the way that I want them to treat it? So they're going to be opinionated mm -hmm. and give feedback about it. Or do I just give them like the outline? Like we've built this prototype. These are the things we fixed. This is the user feedback and everyone. Yeah. And this is exactly. a percentage of people that liked it. Bam, done. I think that's more where I would go mm -hmm. with prototypes on that kind of level. Yeah. Well, so I so do you remember the uh, the booking uh, click event? So this is where the the partners come to an event with booking, and so we had a we had a booth there, and we had the live product with some test accounts on there that we could let the partners get their hands on, and we also had some vision prototypes that were a little bit more advanced. Whilst we were demoing uh, these products, we had you know a C level executive come by. And I uh, showed him some things, but also on my phone, I had a, I had a framer prototype. Now this was the base of framer, so I didn't have it actually working on my phone. I, I don't think I could do it at the time. It was just my phone, so I had a video, and if I zoomed in on the video, I could show him, and it was it was way more advanced again. I think Andre, you saw this prototype. You give me critique. You're like, "What's this? Change that. This sucks." Uh, but when I showed this to uh, to the C level executive, you know that he was really excited about it and he, and like you said you know they they like i have these personal problems and he started sharing all these anecdotes it's like oh i've, I've been on holiday i've had this problem wouldn't it be great if i could do this and all of these ideas start coming out so that kind of instant buy-in just from having this video that i zoomed in on this very crude rudimentary thing but it it was really interactive and it could really sell where we wanted to go with this product so to that point, you know, was it a was it a bad thing to show him there on that day? I, I think that went pretty well. However, you know, to the previous points as well, I have had product managers see an advanced prototype and say, "I really like this. Just ship that." <laughs> like, no, we can't. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, that's true. It's all about how you frame it. If you don't think about it, if you just think it looks beautiful, I will show it to everybody and everybody will understand, and I can keep on going. Okay, that's not going to happen. Some, sometimes it does, but yeah, like David said, it's all about framing. So after that learning moment. What I did was I showed, I still showed prototypes, but I showed how users responded to the prototypes. So I screen record everything. I summarized what are the patterns, what are people doing most in this test? Here are some examples. And that's different. And also uh, last year I was, uh, I was working for Schiphol airport and was user testing in the terminal. It was like heaven because we always could just walk to the users. <laughs> but then also a C-level person came by like, hey, what are you guys doing? I did show the prototype. Yeah, we're working on this and this, but I, at the same time, I explained what we're doing at that moment and also what, like a summary of what the users already uh, responded to that. But then you don't get the feedback of what his wife thinks about it or his, uh, when he showed it as home or secretary. Classic. So this goes back to the expectation setting part. If to, to Don's point, it is sometimes better just to show a storyboard. Again, this is why I, I want to change the terminology and get more specific. If you show a storyboard to them, you can set expectations that because it's just a rendered pictures or a rendered wireframe flow or whatever. The moment you start showing something that looks real, then yes, expectations change. So you have to be very careful. Even the click through part is a little tricky, if you, especially if everything looks hyper real. At the same time, again, things are becoming faster, cheaper and easier to make. Staying away from a prototype because it sets the wrong expectations is just robbing yourself of getting good information. So you really have to work uh, on your own with your own teams to make sure you're doing that because 
building something uh, versus just drawing rough outlines of it is a completely different use of your brain in your design brain. And you need to get into the building stuff just as much as you get into the drawing stuff. To me, like having done things like set design and, and working on in, in the physical form when I was young, there's a great difference between building or drafting up the, the, the plans for the set and then building a scale model and then just actually building it and painting it for real. All three of those activities are super interesting as a creative type and a, and a designer, in my opinion. And they all exercise different parts of your brain and you should be using all of them as much as possible. And you should not let anybody else's inability to understand what is going on rob you of it. You need to find a way to communicate when you use these things, why you use them, how they need to be used. And we all need to do a better job of that with our team so that we don't rob ourselves of this super critical thing that we should have been doing all along, which is prototyping. So now that we are all agreed on that prototypes are a vital part and that we know that like kind of the nuances of when to use them, what are the the contents of a good prototype? Because we've talked about this the the, the past weeks, Andre, like the designers taking the time to do all these things. Uh, you mentioned also Dan that I think there's this pitfall of building a prototype of the happy flow, where you show mm -hmm. like, oh, if you press here and here, and then you're basically at the end, you're basically putting out a survey with leading questions, and then everyone says yes, and see, this is exactly the right thing that we've done. Mm -hmm. So what are the things that, if you sum them up, that are really important to put in a prototype? Uh, one, you mentioned like designing and building the entire flow, just not like the happy flow. Mm -hmm. What are other things that are, is real data uh, important or can you come up with something else there? Realistic data. If you can do real data, of course, why not? But yeah, so that's also what I learned from design sprints and the book is like on Tuesday, you start sketching and your solution sketch. And all in all the four-step sketch processes, you're really also working on content. So uh, even the wording and the copy, he says, uh, you don't really only should sketch uh, interface, but also think of how you would say it. And that's really important. And so no, of course, no lorem ipsum, but also just really focus on making it realistic as possible, as personal as possible for that customer even. So I had to do a new Volkswagen website test. I checked out what are the profiles of the users and I try to match the cars that I would expect those people to go for. And yeah, and not only the happy flow, but as many routes as possible. So there are many ways to roam. And I always try to make all of them and also make like decoy routes to things that uh, don't have anything to do with it. Because yeah, I just want, if I could, I would give them the real app with everything in it, but that's the point. That's why you prototype, you are not investing that time, but I want to give something that's really close to that. Yeah, so um trying to think about how I, I think of this. I tend to try to break problems up into smaller pieces. And then doing that, the problem there is that the smaller pieces don't connect. If, and if you don't find a way to connect them, then you're getting in trouble. But it's not just about the happy flow. The happy flow is definitely important, but you need the happy flow to understand what the success is supposed to be. I like what Dan said about putting in the nooks and crannies, if you let people get lost into it. So if you can try to aim to have your prototype be hands-free as much as possible, where you don't have to control anything, they can just get lost in the prototype. That's super useful. Definitely super useful. You'll see a lot of things where you have to resist the urge to tell them what's going on, but you'll see them do a lot of things there. One of the things that's really hard to do with a prototype, and Michelle uses this term, and I've always known the term as something else, but I actually like his term as well, which was, he called it, what, abuse or... Yeah. By the what way, do you, what yeah, do you Michelle, call it? Michelle is uh, the product owner I work with at Booking. Uh, oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. Previously at Press. But yeah, he used the term... I like, I like how people misuse my product. Misuse, yeah. So we, we would always call that happy accident because misuse was like, oh, yeah. holding it wrong. So ha yeah, exactly, exactly, happy accident, but misuse. And the interesting there is that if your prototype can actually create a situation where somebody misuses it and you can see that, then you've definitely gotten a prototype at a spot where it's useful. Yeah. So that's, I think, the way I would think of what Don just said about getting lost in the prototype. So... You want to put enough in there where people can do something incorrectly. And because when they do, they'll give you either a positive or negative reaction to it. And actually, when I look back on it, I remember that in Illustrator and in Photoshop land, we when we sent the uh, prototypes and the, the builds out to alpha testers, we would get a lot of comments like, oh, I did this and this. And I remember we would sit with, I would sit with the engineers 
And we're going, why are they doing that? That's not the way it's supposed to be used. And then we look at it and that's actually an interesting idea. In fact, as a little tidbit is like the history brush, the whole history palette and the way Photoshop did history painting came from uh, a version of a prototype we sent for five, I think, four or five, I forget where history came in, where we noticed one of the, the alpha testers was trying to do something because they thought that's how the feature worked with this painting thing. And Mark Hamburg looked at it and goes, oh, wait, I actually think I can make that work for real, what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And yep, lo and behold, a couple months later, he came up with his, the concept of history. So not only do we have multiple undo, you could go forward in time, save that point, go backward in time, and then paint forward in time back at the present, which was just this bizarre thing that would never have come about unless somebody misused the, the prototype. And I think this yeah. goes into comes back to the this thing we talked about uh, a while ago, Andre, is that in user testing, it's important to observe your users and not ask your users. Yeah, hard. It's so hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if there's a one skill you're going to learn as a designer, that's the one, right? Because I think, and you can only observe your user if the prototype you hand them is broad enough that they can actually do something other than just follow one straight path yeah. to, to yeah. a goal. I suppose, yeah, the only other thing, and so I just, you know, it's always good to have, you know, a second opinion from, you know, always have your copywriter check over all, every, all of the copies to make sure there's, there's nothing that, that's been overlooked. And also there's guidance from your researcher as well. If you, if you have the resources just to, just to help understand what it is that you're trying to learn and that you don't miss anything there. So, yeah. So in terms of observing and not always asking, you know, it helps to have their opinion to, to help phrase some of those, some of those sessions and, and if there's something missing in the process. So this, this might be controversial. Contro controversy or co controversy is what I would say, but mm -hmm. controversy. No, to Bullock's point there, I don't know if this gets anybody in trouble or me in trouble. In the same way, you got to be careful with the prototypes being used by your executives in this wonky way or, or bad expectation setting. Also be careful that your researchers don't use you and your prototypes for their means. There's got to be uh, a little bit of expectation setting with the research team that they can get their version of the prototype as well to get what they're looking to research. But it's also a tool that you need to use yourself. And mm -hmm. so let's make sure that as a designers, we don't basically become slaves to the process and slaves to what everybody else needs out of the prototype versus what we need. And sometimes we just need an environment where we can screw around with uh, weird ideas to see what the hell happens. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be tested or researched all the time, or it doesn't need to be evaluated and critiqued on all the time. Yeah, I agree. And, Sounds familiar. And I think one thing, <laughs> yeah. One thing I want to add there details. is that the the main reason not to do prototypes is always people saying, "Yeah, it takes more time." And I actually yeah. completely disagree with the fact that it may take more time in the like, short term, but especially longer term. Remember when you had to, and I remember this at Booking in the beginning. Like people were designing these pages, and they were basically just like content pages. And they're designing 11 or 12 different states of this page. And this was before auto layout or like real data coming in. They basically had 11 screens. And the only thing different was that the, on screen one, there was, this, uh, there was an error text here. And on screen two, there was a validation text here. If you would build a solid prototype, all this would have happened like instantly, especially if you hook them up to data, if you hook them up to, like, to, to an actual production environment. One of the first things when designing like the CityBook app, which what I did is we were in a state where we didn't really know what we're going to show, but we, we had this idea of a concept we were trying to do. We were trying to show content based on the context and how that would change. And we couldn't basically build that prototype because uh, we didn't really invest the time in building something that could check the weather and then build different versions of the prototype. But I knew, and this is also always something that bothers me, is that if you're building something, it's always going to be that your product, the product person in your team or the researcher on your team, they always want to change stuff like throughout the entire process. And I think prototyping also helps here to like democratize the process of design. If mm -hmm. you like hook it up to real data, for instance, like if you use Airtable or if you use like a Google spreadsheet to populate your designs, it really helps like democratizing this idea that, okay, we're building this together. I'm going to focus on this. You're going to focus on this. You'll see edge cases more often coming in because the product person is trying everything they can in like the, the content part. And I think the concept of it takes too much time is just complete bullshit. And it's like this, it's sh in short term, maybe makes sense. But if you want to build a product, 
you want to invest in a product anyway, so why not invest in a prototype? That sure. Sense. Still, I'm not against iterating on designs. If you can do it fast, if you can make 20 versions of the same screen in like Figma or Sketch, just duplicate it and check it out. That's okay. Uh, and that's really good actually, because we used to use in Photoshop and Fireworks where you had only one screen. You tried that maybe some layers turning them on and off. So I really like that, like in Crazy Eights, where you in one minute yeah. try eight of this just to exhaust your brain. That's fine. But if you're really indecisive about it, or if you are using it with your whole team to do like, uh, I said, design my committee with it, like maybe I like this, yeah, then just use a prototype. Yeah. And if your prototype didn't work, oh, wait, I thought of another way. Maybe just try that. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking more about if you, if you have to design the different states of all the screens and the different, like in exploration phase, I totally agree. Go as bright, broad as you can. Mm -hmm. But at some point in the phase, it doesn't make sense to create different versions of a screen state by just duplicating the frame and then just adding like a copy, a bit of copy mm -hmm. here and there. Sure. The funny thing about software again is I feel like our industry and I've lived through more of it now. We've done everything humanly possible to pretend as if no other creative industry has existed before us. It's just bonkers. Like the automotive industry or the fashion industry or architectural and buildings or theater and production, you know, like movie production. Every other creative industry that I know that does design, not art, but design, all build small versions or versions of something before they go into production. And it's been the way that it's always been. So in the theater, I was trained on the measure twice, cut once model, which is you've got 500 bucks to buy all the wood. You've got the set figured out. Now you're about to actually build it. And so before you hit that saw to the wood, you better measure it and then measure it again to make sure you got the right measurement before you cut it because you're not getting more money and theater doesn't get much money as it is anyway. So when you start building the set, you better for sure know that it's the right thing. And that gets then to the process before it, which is before you go buy the wood and all the wood you need, you need to actually build a scale model and paint that thing. And then before that, you need to do all the various different renderings and research and boards on the wall and all kinds of stuff. So the process was always uh, creative in the sense that you would build these small versions of, of scale models before you build the real thing. Automotive industry did that. And now they've got 3D tools that help them scale things out. But the only way to know if you're going to, if the car is safe is to build a real version of the car and crash it into a wall. Yep. That's how you're going to know. Fashion industry, you got to sew one of the, the, the things together and put it on a person. Putting it on a mannequin is one thing, but they have to put it on a person. And but yeah, my experience has always been that you're insane to ship something without ever having built a version of it. And so my take on this in the industry and going through this was prototyping was always a thing. I don't know where people thought that they it wasn't a thing. And I was always used to building a scale model of something. And quite frankly, the reason why I got into design in this creative endeavor was because I thought it was fun. I thought that was much better than sitting behind a desk for eight hours a day, pushing paper, that drawing in, in is one thing, but building something was also fun using my hands. And I feel like we definitely lost that along the way, but it's coming back and it's coming back with a fury, hopefully with the tools that we have now. So yeah, that's my take is that every other industry does this Wait, right? We got to stop reinventing the wheel. Let's just go look at other industries and see how they handle some of these problems. Let's just skip ahead. <laughs> Let's not relearn 80 years of something that the car industry took. To, to learn. Let's just use what they've got and move on. Let's do the same thing from fashion and other creative industries. I agree. When you're a kid, you know, it tends to be quite common that everyone had this phase of building things or we're quite crafty and you stick things onto things. You know, I've, I, was, I was telling uh, David, do you remember when, you know, Ninja Turtles came out when, when that first first exploded on the scene and i remember seeing this tv commercial for the the ninja turtles and i was like oh my god you know the, these ads like these turtles they were like hanging on a grappling hook and they flew down and uh, you see these kids playing with these figurines and stuff uh and i remember thinking oh wow this is really cool so i actually built this like city scene out of like easter egg boxes and i had a grappling hook and i didn't have the figure yet so i actually built a ninja turtle out of cardboard and i just feel like this this whole nature of prototyping for designers you know, with do, do you know do we first get a cut our teeth on that when we're when we're young and and is it something that's worth pursuing and and, and you know why indeed do we do we lose that as we as we get older and we move into these industries and and it's it, it's you know for, for me as a kid it was a way of uh, experiencing the real thing if you didn't have it you could actually just make it yourself let's bring nice. back the fun bring back the fun for, yeah yeah definitely for me it's pretty clear that if you're going to work at a startup especially early phase 
like all the roles haven't been defined yet. So if you're joining as a designer at an early phase startup, you're, as Dan mentioned, you're going to or do starting everything. starting one. Yeah, or you're starting one. You're going to be, you're going to be doing like, like talks with investors. You're going to be doing some prototype and doing some coding. <clears throat> I think that's the most fun phase of being a designer that you can touch on all these things. You can learn. And along the way, as the startup progresses and matures more, you'll naturally find like the thing that you're most effective at and gives you the most energy. And I think if you're going to join like a big company because of the insane amount of people for the insane little work that there is, you're going to be so marginalized in like in a box. And this is your context. This is what mm. you're doing. And people, to Andre's point, last topics, people think because there are copywriters that designers don't have to do uh, copy. People think because there's engineers, like designers don't have to do any prototyping or, or, or coding to that aspect. And I think at a startup, you'll learn like it's hands-on, right? Everyone here has to do the work that is necessary to mm. get this ball rolling. And at a big company, you lose this because there are so many people there doing all this. Yeah, things. that's funny. Just when Bollock was uh, telling about all those roles, yeah, you need to research to do this and copywriters. I was like listening enviously like, yeah, yeah. I'm all that person. I'm, I'm all those roles now. Yeah. But yeah, that's, I always got the mentality because when I started with designing, a lot of companies were not familiar with design. So that's why they hired agencies. So I was used to being like a little startup within that company. Later on, of course, the, the teams became bigger, but I was already a generalist. So I was like, oh, my, I had my copy already ready. And then the copywriter came just with a red marker. Like, oh, yeah, okay, only change this and that. So yeah, that's a really good mentality to have, to really be broad and to overlap with other disciplines and not only think, oh, as my role is designed, so I cannot uh, prototype, I cannot develop. And right now I'm even going even broader because uh, like developers have so much time and I'm like, yeah, how hard can it be? I can do Framer. Let's go into React Native and see how it works now. I can drop, drop shadow here. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. I think we're, let me check the, the notes that I make. Yeah, maybe for... Maybe this is going to be a harsh advice, but for people that are uh, currently in a job where they don't do prototyping much, is there any other advice than quit your job and join a startup? Or is there ways at a big company where you can actually do more prototyping? Or should you invest just learning the tools? At a big company, you got to work with your managers on that. I think the good news is that whether you've got a Creative Cloud subscription through Adobe at work that gives you access to uh, XD at least, or if you want to just get your own personal license to, to Framer, that's pretty inexpensive to, to get. Uh, a lot of people are using Figma, which has the beginnings of a lot of these mm -hmm. tools now, or they had Sketch, which is finally adding them. I think if your company isn't doing this, you have the ability to, to easily afford doing it on your own in some form or fashion. You should find a way to do that. Even I think you can grab Quartz if you want to grab Quartz if you're on a Mac mm -hmm. and grab the developer tools. I mean, that one's a little... Anyone still use that, the Quartz Composer? Uh, Origami? It, it's still interesting in some ways. We'll see if they refine it or not. But the larger point is that the tools have gotten so much better from the days that I was doing this early on. They, these tools are amazing. Framer, Figma, React Native, all of the things you've got available for you to do this now is just dive in and do it yourself if the company's not going to support you. Yeah. yeah. And just treat it like it's fun. Treat it like back in the days when you were learning HTML or treat it back in the days when you were learning how to paint and draw or treat it back in the days when, to Bullock's point, you felt like more like a kid. And this is an exciting venture. It's an exciting venture. Invest in yourself and have some fun. Yeah. Yeah. I disagree with one little thing that you said in the beginning. Ask your manager. Maybe it's because I'm Dutch, but uh, for me, it's <laughs> don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. And just the, like the whole reasons of, uh, I don't know how to prototype. We just talked about it. They're not the reason anymore. Just do it. Go guerrilla in your own company. Make yep. your little prototypes. Go to the copying machine corner. Wait for people to show up. And then say, hey, can you try this? I'm stuck in this app. Can you try <laughs> Just go first do that and then for yourself only and maybe build out from there. But just yeah. prototype for yourself. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because I was going to say the same thing. You know, if your company doesn't do it, I'll be like, well, just do it and show him. And then you'll get by and yeah. ask for forgiveness later. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think the success stories of like changing something at companies always happen like in such fashion where people just go guerrilla or go rogue and start building like prototypes and then showing it. Because I, th I think the reverse what would happen is like if you ask your manager, they'll, they'll come with, okay, what, what's, the, what's this business? Can you come up with the business guys, please? If you guys want a fun read, you can go to my Medium posts and stuff. I wrote a article five years ago now that was called The Biggest Mistake I Made in My Career. It's exactly about what you just you, mentioned. You went rogue? 
No, no, I'll let you read it. It, it got a lot of it got a lot of reaction when I wrote it um, on Medium. It was quite fascinating mm. to watch the reaction, but it's Let's, exactly about that. So okay. That, so that's the follow-up for this this podcast. Uh, Dan, thank you for joining. Um, yeah, thank you. Last question. Like, what's the... Because I saw Flow being out of beta. What's the current yes. status of the product? Anything else to, to share there? Yeah, you notice. Because we just actually saw... We got our license from the Dutch Central Bank, finally, last summer. So we just soft-launched our app. And this afternoon, there's a certain bank that will make a certain announcement that's going to be also a really nice uh, partnership. Nice. And next week, beginning of next week, we're really going live. Yeah, so... Everybody that wants to automate their money should be everybody that can. Yeah. You can already go to the app store right now in the play store to download the app, but the next week we're really going live and adding even more features to the app. Cool. Yeah. I'm really excited about the product. I hope my, I hope it's my bank that's going to be announcing. Which bank do you have? ING. (laughs) Maybe. Okay. We'll, uh, We'll see. Cool. Thanks Andre. Thanks David. Any last remarks from someone? Other than go rogue and start building prototypes? No, just just that, go rogue. Cool. Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on the Designers FM show. Make sure to visit our website, designers.fm, where we put links to all the shows on all the different platforms so you never have to miss one. And uh, you can also subscribe to updates so you don't miss a show. Um, While you're at it, if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes or just tell a friend about us we'd be extremely thankful. That's all for now. I'm your host, David, and this class is dismissed.